Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When I say wheels, you say suckers. Wheels! Wheels! It's a rogue. Captain Editor Alex speaking. I do social media marketing and events for Look Mom No Hands, Cycle Cafe Bar Workshop in London. I am usually joined by my stoker, Jenny, director of the London Bike Kitchen, a Do It Together bike workshop. I'm just here for a quick one to introduce our interview with Ellie Blue. Please have a listen. Please enjoy. We are in a park, so please excuse the park sounds. Quick shout out if you are based in London and you are free Thursday night, the 5th of October, please come to Jenny's book launch. We'll be singing, doing Baikyoki, and look mum no hands. And we'll be back with a show next week. Enjoy, friends! This is funny. This is awesome. I this like is this funny. Show. This is very old time radio. <laughs> Especially coming at you live from the side of the football field. <laughs> Please state your name. My name is Ellie Blue. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Hi, thanks Thank for you. having me on. Thanks for having me I was going to say, here. thanks for coming. Yeah. Thanks for coming over. All the way over. <laughs> Just to be on the podcast. Yes, Portland. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> First question. What? Tell us what you do and how long you've been doing it for. So I write and publish and sometimes write and publish books about bicycling and zines. And I've been writing about bikes since... For more than 10 years now. Wow. Amazing. I started writing online. I was a blogger, and I was a blogger for a very long time. And then I, as part and part of his reaction to having to deal with blog comments and the internet in general, I started publishing zines. Uh, so a zine is like a small pamphlet, I guess, that anyone can make one about whatever you want. Usually it's about a very obsessive, narrow interest. In my case, <laughs> feminism and bicycling. <laughs> And then from there, I started writing books of my own and publishing other people's books, and the rest is history. Cool. And what's your publishing house called? Or? So I named it after myself. It's called Ellie Blue Publishing. Great. <laughs> it's an imprint of Microcosm Publishing, which I co-own. Um, Microcosm publishes Chainbreaker? Yes. Which is, I cut my teeth yes. <laughs> on, on mechanics with that book. That is, it is like the best maintenance book out there what do you love it. what do you love about it it's really easy to read really honest and plain language 
is used. It's the best maintenance book out there. There are so many bike maintenance books out there. And this one is just, it's the only one I'll use. And it covers, it doesn't really cover any brand new stuff. But if you've got an old bike, and most people do, uh, yeah. it just covers the basics. And it's really short. It's easy to read. There's a bunch of zine stuff in the back. It's written by a woman, co-written. This, um, I can't remember her name. Shelly Jackson. Shelly Jackson and Ethan... Clark. Clark, yeah. We're actually doing a new edition of that next year. No way! Uh-huh. It's still going. Amazing. Oh, sweet! Both of the authors have, like, moved on from bikes, but they're still oh, no really way. excited about it. Shelly lives in, like, a Buddhist monastery, and <laughs> I don't know what Ethan's oh, God, doing, but... Cool. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Uh-huh. I'm really happy to hear that. Bike projects of the world rejoice. Yeah. I uh, definitely want to stock it at Bike Kitchen because it's, again, it's the only book I recommend to people to get. It's the only one that tells you how to fix your old bike or like yeah. your chain store bike. All the other books tell you not to get one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a random question. What were you doing before you started or what were you doing while you were blogging? Oh, let's see. And so before, in the before time. That's a good question. So I went to college and then when I graduated, I got odd jobs. And in Portland? In Portland, yeah. Um, and I, while I was having odd jobs, I started to get involved in bicycle activism. I got involved in critical mass, and then that kind of went kaput like it does in so many places. <laughs> and then I just got obsessed with bikes, and I started to, instead of looking for like a regular job, which had been my plan, I just started to keep seeking odd jobs in order to be a bike activist. And then I ended up trying to make a living doing that. It didn't really work out, but I organized some conferences and events cool. and car free days and then eventually the blogging started to be my income and freelance writing and more odd jobs and odd jobs are kind of the story of my life until recently <laughs> that's good though because that means you're doing something that you really love totally exactly. and then the odd jobs help fund that so. it's, it's funny I was an administrative assistant I think I was going to be a career secretary until I went to college and I thought that like, going to college I would get a better career but I've never made the same salary that I made as an administrative assistant wow. since I graduated. Oh, and I blame bikes. That's yeah. <laughs> or I get bikes, bikes credit for saving me from that thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a better way of looking at it. Yeah. Probably. Mm. Because you've been doing it for so long, what trends have you noticed in the bike world? Mm, so, like, over the last decade, a lot has changed, actually. The family bicycling movement has really grown. And the sort of cargo in the U.S., like, cargo bikes were, like, not really something anyone had ever heard of, at least for anything other than, like, selling ice cream. Mm -hmm. And now it's becoming much, much more common. Um, maybe not mainstream yet, but in some cities it's mainstream. Is it like that episode of Portlandia where they have the moving company and everything gets moved by bike? Yes, it's totally like that. <laughs> See, this is the thing about the TV show Portlandia is every time they make a joke about Portland, it's like kind of falls flat in Portland because everything there is actually like that or really more so. so. Well, yeah, you move by bike. That's what you do. <laughs> I've moved by bike several times. You put out a call to the email list serve and like 40 people will show up and like fight over your big furniture. And Who gets to carry the couch? Yeah. Amazing. Goddamn. Oh, so many helicopters. <laughs> looks like it's, it's going away though. Yeah, that one looks like it's that on looks mission. That looks like a, it's going to the emergency room. <sighs> I feel like I see more cargo bikes here as well. I don't know what yeah, you think, yeah. Jenny. And like family cycling. And it gives me hope. I know. It's so um, nice to see. Hackney Cycling Campaign 
they're the ones that organized Kittical Mass, or they're definitely oh, a part nice. of it. And they've created like a cargo bike library, and they've become really family cycling focused because there's a lot more little ones running yeah. around now in Hackney. <laughs> all the hipsters grew up, and oh, they all have kids have now. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> and they need a bike for their yeah. kids. Yeah, and we we're going to ask you, you've been in Amsterdam recently, so we wanted yeah. to kind of talk about maybe things you've noticed in Portland to London, London to Amsterdam. Amsterdam. So it's a little bit of an unfair comparison between Portland and either of these cities because Portland is really the smallest city. We feel big, but we're not. It's like very suburban layout. We're building tall buildings now, but we don't really have that many. But there has been a lot of effort to make Portland bike-friendly in recent years, and that's a little bit paid off. And London, it seems like, is just such a huge city. I don't even know where to begin. Like, I've only seen the smallest part of it, mostly here in Islington. And it kind of seems like there's some bike lanes, but it feels more like New York City, where you're, like, kind of on your own most of the time, like, dodging cars, and then there's a bike lane once in a while, and you're like, ah. Yeah, 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 you've nailed it. That's exactly it. <laughs> but but it's probably like ten times better than it used to be. Would be my guess. It is I better. So. Yeah, it feels there's way more lanes now. The amount of times I've stumbled onto a lane now, and I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I meant, when I brought up before the the embankment is my favorite change. It's just it used to be horrendous to cycle before. I was terrified. And now it's an absolute pleasure. Mm. <laughs> Little changes like that can make all the difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I guess that's how you, like, grow it. And then Amsterdam is just, like, a whole different story. Like, they, you know, everything, when they rebuilt it after the war, they rebuilt it for cars, I believe. And mm. then the bicycle activists went and... They stopped the kindermort or... Stopped the child deaths. Yeah, like... Stopped the child killings. I love the images of, like, moms lying down in the street pretending to be dead cyclists, you know? So, and because... the I mean, they had the room to build all the cycle tracks, and they did, and it's amazing. It's changed. I mean, everybody loves to talk about how Dutch cycling infrastructure is amazing, but it's yeah. true. But that was a... We were talking earlier about bottom-up change versus top-down change, and I feel like that was definitely a... It's both. It's always both. If you didn't have those moms protesting, the government would have never... They wouldn't have done it. They would have done it. Yeah. Mm. It would have been just like here. And it's interesting, because Portland very much is like trying to be like the Netherlands. Like our city planners take their personal vacations to go hang out with other city planners <laughs> in the Netherlands. I'm not joking. Amazing. And then they come I back. They're such, <laughs> they such nerds. Bless them. But they come back and they implement what they found. And it's interesting because it's like what happens in Portland is you build all those bike you like build this bike infrastructure in these sort of like isolated spaces, like one district at a time. And it ends up having this effect of profound mm. gentrification, or it kind of goes along with the policy of that. Mm. So, and what we haven't done in Portland is we haven't given very much attention at all to sort of the outskirts of town, yeah. which is where people have to move once mm -hmm. they're priced out of the wonderful bike-friendly inner city. And yeah. I don't think that bikes by themselves cause that much increase of costs, but they go along. It's, isn't that, that very strange well. though? Because bikes are such egalitarian form of transport and yet it's become a symbol of gentrification and it's all that's the top down that's what the top down can do for you though is like when or do against you is like the bike is egalitarian but the places you have to ride it are not Oh my god! <laughs> Why is there football boys? <laughs> like, well, we are at a five-a-side um, oh. court. It's a constant battle. Like we, uh, bike kitchen, we've been served 
an eviction notice before uh, because the building was bought out by developers. They were going to kick, they were kicking us out and then raising rents by 400% for the people who lived there because they wanted to bring it up to market value. And I kind of felt like, oh my god, the dog is chasing the squirrel. Oh my god, the squirrel got away. (laughs) And I felt kind of like we helped instigate that because everyone, our, our block was kind of dead. Like half of the shop fronts were closed and then we opened up. And then suddenly other places, people started wanting to open up shops there. And they weren't necessarily trendy ones, but there were more people coming in. And then, ah, oh, fuck, what did I, what have I done? <laughs> I have created my own demise. <laughs> what happened? Uh, well, Russell Brand got involved. Um, he's a comedian. I don't know if you know him. No. He's a British comedian. Mm, like a UK kind of odd celebrity. Yeah. And, but he was going through his like social justice phase and decided to use his power for good, which is great, and ended up getting, brought so much media attention to it that the housing for the development company ended up reselling to a social landlord. That's what we have now. And they didn't raise rents at all. And without them, we wouldn't be able to exist. That's amazing. We're still oh, a so nonprofit. You know. Thank you, Russell Brand. Yeah. yeah no, Never thought I would say that. <laughs> I wow. hope he at least spreads a bike. I've seen him ride a bike a few times, but the funny story was because he ended up opening up a, a cafe a couple doors down from us. And at the beginning, he was there a lot. He was like, oh, this is my thing. He'd be swanning around. Like he does. <laughs> he swans. Yeah. He swans. And we noticed there was like a driver about a block down parked in a really fancy car. He would just hang out and be smoking there. And then occasionally I'd see Russell go to the car. And I was like, dude, it's like when your mom drops you off a block from school because you don't want to be seen by the kids <laughs> with your mom and I was like really Russell like <laughs> you don't want the people to see you and you're like fancy Bentley wow <laughs> and with your driver celebrity secrets I revealed I can't believe yeah. that <laughs> it's like just embrace it I know don't try to hide it. it like you did you used your powers for good don't try to we can see. Yeah, we, we see. see your and driver, Russell. And it's worse when you try to find it. <laughs> That's an incredible story. <laughs> well, you created a safe space for bikes and that one fancy car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll let it slide, maybe. It's fine, I'll let it slide. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So what's it like running your own publishing house and why do you like zines? Because you're still publishing zines. I am. I'm still publishing zines as well as books. And um, running my own publishing house was incredibly awesome and incredibly stressful. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's like publishing is one of those jobs. Everyone talks big about self-publishing now, but really Amazon is the publisher and most of the time and the people doing the publishing are just being hoodwinked by Amazon. I had to get that publishing editorial aside in there. Wow. But when you're actually... I want to hear more about that. <laughs> sure, fair enough. I guess when you're like actually running a publishing house, you're like running a business and you're doing writing, editorial, acquisitions, marketing, publicity, sales, bookkeeping, inventory, all these million things <laughs> that go into it, which is fine when you only have like three or four things but once you have like 10 or 12 things it starts yeah. to get a little out of yeah. hand which is why mm. I sold my company to, and became co-owner of a larger thing where there were like staff to do all those different things Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense but um, where was I? Oh yeah, why zines and what's it like to run a publishing house? It's cool, it's like you get to learn every facet of whatever your area of interest is because you're always like when you're publishing books or when you're doing marketing or when you're doing any kind of like commerce, I guess you kind of want to like have a narrow, as narrow of a niche as possible. Usually like if I were to say I'm publishing books for women or books about feminism, that would be a lot harder than being like, I want to focus on feminist things about bicycling because that like the niche captures people's attention and gives them something to relate to mm-hmm. rather than being like, Oh, well, whatever that's for anybody. Yeah. So it's like cool to get to like meet a lot of people and have those conversations and like kind of be inspired by what other people are thinking and doing and unexpected things that they say and write. And it's just fun to be able to be creative, like having a lot of constraints with money or with topic or whatever, it forces you to be a lot more creative. So like I came up with the idea of bicycle feminist science fiction. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to ask about this bike topia. Yeah. I was like, this is everything I'm into. <laughs> Feminism, so bikes, good. and science fiction. I was awesome. like, fuck. See? <laughs> the future is reimagined. Exactly. From a feminist cycling perspective. And that's actually a collection, isn't it, of lots of other work. Yeah, like, there's four different anthologies of it, and I'm working on the fifth one right now. Amazing. Cool. Are you so the most fun? You were doing a call-out. Um, do you want to still call out now for... It's a trans story. Oh, yeah. And I still am accepting stories if you're uh, transgender or gender variant or gender nonconforming and you want to write something about that and bicycling um, for the 15th issue of my zine, which is called Taking the Lane. You can uh, email me about that at uh, L-E-E-L-L-Y at takingthelane.com. Cool. Amazing. Super fun. Yeah. I get some submissions. I know I got one from when you promoted it. Oh, sweet. Thank you, person who (laughs) found it. I wanted to ask you about, you have like a, I read on the website about a pricing structure. Oh, yeah. So for one of my zines, it was about disasters and bicycling. All of my zines have like a niche, like a 
something in bicycling. So I had things like work in bicycling or um, everyday heroes in bicycling or dogs in bicycling or religion in bicycling. And I had one about disasters in bicycling. And all the submissions I were getting were from men, which I had not had that happen before. Because when you say, say something is feminist, like, it's, you know, not every man is going to put themselves out there and yeah. submit their writing to a feminist bike scene. Let's just put it that way. But for the disaster issue, that really, like, overcame that barrier. <laughs> so I was kind of like, how do I deal with this? I don't know. Um, but one of the ideas that I had was to, like, take the sort of wage table of, like, broken down by race and gender and like raise the price like raise the price based on where you identified on that table so if you were like a woman of color um the zine would be five dollars if you were a white woman it would be like seven dollars and if you were a man a white man it would be the most it would be like eight or nine dollars i forget how much it was but huh. that seemed to make more people want to buy it or have less that's really interesting like, yeah, so i was like yeah. wow what, i was like never really i mean actually yeah yeah. It's the kind of thing where I expected there to be controversy and there was zero. Like, I actually, someone who sold it in their store told me that someone had come in and demanded to pay the higher price. <laughs> <laughs> Even though they didn't have to at all. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Because that's, that's what I saw the feminist library had done with that event, was it was a tiered student, you know, I can't remember the terminology. It was usually based on income, right? Whereas yeah. this one's based on socioeconomic status and right. ethnicity. That's what's interesting. And I'm not sure I would do it that same way again. Like, I feel like asking people to call themselves out that way is like, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would do it now, but it was... I like the idea of literally just putting different pricing. Yeah. Because there's a lot of, like, pay what you want, pay what you like. Yeah. And that, I think, in crime can make people just pay less or not pay anything. But to, like, put three different pricing, I'd really like to see how people pay because I think sometimes when people do really care about something, they do pay more, yeah. if they yeah. can. Yeah. When I just did an um, osteo session at a place that's just open for core traction, they do a sliding scale based on income. Mm-hmm. And they have, like, if you identify as concessions or lower income, they have a scale of paying 15 to 25 pounds. Mm-hmm. And then if you are have a regular wage, uh, it's between, like, 35 to 55 and that was really helpful for me because I was like, I definitely identify as concessions. But I thought my session was really good, so I was like, I'll pay the upper end, so I paid 2500 Um That was really helpful for me because if it had just been 15 to 55 I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like giving people guidelines within a sliding scale is it's really, really a kinder thing to do. Yeah, it's like with, I was going to say like with children, you know, we even too much choice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the other interesting thing about that experiment was it gave me some market research info that I had never really thought to gather before, and I learned that like most of my readers are white men, or were at that oh. time, or at least people that were buying that one. Then again, this is like, you know, the topic was self-selecting, and maybe the pay scale was like, yeah. especially appealing to white men for being singled out, and feeling special I don't know or like some people said they didn't want they wanted to pay more even yeah. though they belonged in a different category so maybe mm. there's some variance there yeah go figure but it, it was interesting, interesting to learn that and it's still very much more the case with more than I expect and I honestly think it's that like people want a way or a reason to learn about and identify with this stuff you know like people don't 
even want to ask necessarily or I mean they need like a what do you call it safe space to mm-hmm. just educate themselves maybe by furtively yeah. reading a zine that they bought <laughs> online <laughs> but, and it's weird to be providing that service but it's also you know everyone's welcome to read whatever they want yeah. Yeah. I wonder about our our listeners make yourselves known yeah. <laughs> please state your name we meet, we've been meeting a few. Yeah. It's quite fun. Yeah. Especially events we don't look mum. People come over and be like, do you do the podcast? And I'll be like, yeah! <laughs> and they generally moan about the editing, which I'm very sorry, everybody. <laughs> I'm we're, slowly improving. We're, we're learning. It's very DIY. If yeah. any of you are good at editing, come and yeah, send me a message. Mm, Volunteers, <laughs> please help me. And so we wanted to ask you, I guess it's a big question, but the future, what are you working on what next? Does the future hold, what does the future hold for cycling? What's for women in cycling? North Korea? <laughs> I hope I hope the North Korean cycling movement takes off. <laughs> it seems like political repression can either contribute to or detract from the cycling culture. <laughs> I was on a panel at a conference a couple of years ago, actually, with a bicycle activist from Russia. And his main message was, don't shake things up. Don't break the law. Don't do anything you're not supposed to do. It will only go badly. And I, at the time, I was like, what's wrong with you? But now that we are having our political regime in America I'm like oh I get it yeah <laughs> like better yeah. get in your dissidence while you can everybody um but anyway yeah my predictions for the future um <laughs> slowly like we have a little crystal ball here in the park <laughs> oh man it's funny because like anywhere I go in the U.S. Any bicycle advocate is like, oh, you're from Portland, Oregon. That's so amazing. It's the bike capital of the world. But anywhere I go outside of North America, no one's heard of Portland. They're like, oh, what's that near? (laughs) And then, like, seem to think of it as, like, a suburb of San Francisco, which is very entertaining. Um, (laughs) So I would say, if I was in the United States, I would say, well, Portland will become like reach critical bike and then some other city will become more exciting and more innovative things Minnesota's really big yeah Minneapolis Minneapolis they're amazing they're doing amazing things for bikes they're building they've built these like they used to have rail lines all over the city and they replaced them with bike paths so it's like you have a bike super highway everywhere you want to go it's really rad yeah um and then but here what would I even say I would say send aid (laughs) (laughs) What do you need? <laughs> Just all sorts of moral and mental and physical support. No, we need education and morale oh my, oh and God, yeah. uh, regime change. <laughs> Just scrap the whole thing, shall we? I know, right? How about, how about on a more personal level hmm. in terms of your writing? Next in my future. That's a good question. I've been contemplating that a lot lately. Like, what direction should I go? Because I've kind of... I've, I'm, I'm now with Microcosm. I'm sort of overseeing the editing and selling of many more books of very different genres that aren't even all about bicycling. What? I know, right? <laughs> Which is actually really fun. There are other interesting topics. No. <laughs> so I did really see there's a really good fermentation book, and I was like, hell yeah. yeah <laughs> I love to ferment. I don't bake. I ferment. <laughs> Just let it rot. Let, let it rot in a yeah, drug yeah, in your kitchen. That's, That's my style, my too. Yeah, let it be. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> So it's like on the one hand very distracting and on the one hand really inspiring. And every time I go back to like doing books about bikes, I'm super inspired. So, I mean, I think one of the things that I would like to do more of in the future and maybe listeners of this podcast would be have ideas about this is I'd like to publish more feminist bicycle books. Um, And what I need is for those authors to come to me. Mm -hmm. 
so we can just pitch you ideas. You can totally just pitch me ideas. And more zines also, people making their own feminist bike zines. Cool. I do love a good zine. We've talked about doing that. I think it's just we, the, yeah. you know, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration is not a joke. So. I know, right? It's so true. Do it. I know. Well, it's, it's like the things that, the things that I see other people making are the things that inspire me the most to like come up with my own next path off. Like, so like I might not be doing feminist bike zines and books forever, but it does me a lot of good to see that other people will be. And that like gives me the space to figure out what's next. And I don't know what that will be. And I thought could we end on you just talking a bit about Groundswell that we're sharing at the one tonight. Yeah, sure. So to my partner, Joe Beale and I, we made a bunch of short documentaries about bicycle activists sort of groundswell movements, um, very bottom-up stuff, like people creating their own, really creating their own whatever they need to make bicycling work for them. They're all super different, super inspiring stories, and we show them, and then in between we ask questions of the audience and try to spark a discussion, which in some places is very easy, and in other places is way too easy. <laughs> and in some places doesn't happen at all, and then those events are very short. Uh, <laughs> um, cool. So where can we follow you? Oh yeah, so you can find all of my books at takingthelane.com and microcosmpublishing.com, and you can find me on social media, I'm at Blue on Twitter. Um, what do you do like, if people want to stock your books, if there's people interested and they think, wow, we should stock? feminist bicycle books we would love to help you do that if you are um at a bookstore we have a distributor in london called turnaround and they serve all of europe or you can talk to us directly microcosmpublishing.com has contact info on it and we can we can work that out for you yes submit ideas everybody (laughs) yay please do yes more feminist bike books and zines. Yes. And, zines. and more, podcasts. More, more. And podcasts. I do a podcast feminist zine now. <laughs> feminist zine about podcasts. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank okay, you. bye. Bye. Don't forget, if you like what we do, please like, rate, and subscribe. You can contact us at wheelsuckerspod. Pardon me. And... If you know someone who likes podcasts, hey, send them this podcast. Please share the love. Stay rad, everybody. Bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 